You're listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we'll be speaking with Mo Scarpelli. Mo is an award-winning Italian-American director and cinematographer who shares her perspective on what it's like to be a nonfiction storyteller in Rome, Italy, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mo took it upon herself to capture the essence of what life is like in Rome under quarantine right now in a short film she shot for The New Yorker entitled Rome, Closed City. It's a chilling view of the bustling cosmopolitan city, now a quiet ghost town, with nothing but the sounds of birds singing, juxtaposed by ambulance sirens. Mo wanted to introduce a different perspective than what the doomsday headlines in the media were portraying about life in Italy. She believes that journalism doesn't always accurately illustrate the complexity of human life or the balance between beauty and chaos. In this conversation, you'll get an insider perspective on what's happening in Rome, as well as the insight on the societal impacts coronavirus will have on humanity moving forward. Mo also gives us some beautiful advice on how you can best utilize this time to explore yourself more deeply. So without further ado, I bring you Mo Scarpelli. Mo Scarpelli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Baktash Hadi. Now, Mo, could you tell us um, where you are right now? Yes, I live in Rome, Italy. I moved here about a month ago, and that's where I am. Now, you just came out with a piece in The New Yorker that kind of documents what's going on in Rome. Can you tell us what that piece is all about and give us an essence of what's going on? I share this in the context of what's happening here with the coronavirus pandemic that's plaguing Italy, Europe, and the West, in addition to the Far East. So help us understand what's going on and why you felt like you had to go out and kind of document this. Well, I wanted to make something that captured the strangeness of life. Uh, I just moved here and I convinced my partner to move here with me, always talking about how Italian culture is so different from North America in a way that people have these public communal spaces. They spend a lot of time together. The family structures are very strong. It's a lot of closeness, a lot of touching. You kiss a stranger when you meet them. And then we got here right at the time the coronavirus really struck the north of Italy, which is not where we are, but the country itself started to really change a lot of things on the day-to-day that people can do. And now we're in full-on quarantine with nothing open but pharmacies and grocery stores. And so people are not touching each other and they're not hanging out in plazas and they're not, uh, you know, having four-hour meals, talking about life and getting all excited the way that the Italy that I have only briefly gotten to know in my visits here before coming here now. So it's, it's a little bit, um, yeah, it's a little strange because we've moved here and we have all these people we want to meet in cinema who make cinema as well and mm-hmm. friends that we want to connect with. And basically everything just got put on hold. So we spend every day doing what we would have done where we were before, which is Toronto, where it's very cold. Uh, we would have just stayed inside and been writing our films and researching our films and watching films for inspiration and all those things. That's part of our work. So yeah. now we're doing that here and it's it's kind of suspending our, our getting to know a new place because we, we can't right now. Oh, uh, that's, that's really interesting. So I want to unpack this idea of it being strange to you. So could you kind of talk about the strangeness? Yeah, yeah. So what I try to do when I'm, when I'm filming anything really, or what I guess my work is about is about kind of staying true to what I'm seeing or what has struck me. And sometimes that means altering the reality of the footage. So 
I've made films with dreams before. I've made films that use audio from something else that is mixed with the image of something else. I'm not necessarily concerned with restricting to quote unquote a real world or a, a sequential world as it happens. Everything's subjective. And so basically I, I, when I got here, I just felt this, this weirdness about the city of Rome being very empty. You can hear everything in this, in the piazzas now. You can hear everything in the streets, the bird calls and you hear it echo across the buildings. It's something you would never hear in a busy city in a normal city like this because there'd be people and there'd be cars and there'd be trains. And anyway, I wanted to kind of just get around the city also myself and see how behaviors were differently because of this. Like I said, Italians dealing with these behaviors is a very, very new thing. And I wanted to see from the outside, because I'm an outsider, what that actually looks like. And and to be honest, I also needed a dose of humanity. I mean, anytime that I'm starting to get a little frayed at the edges about life, because life can just suck sometimes <laughs> for everybody, the most important thing for me to do is to get out into the world and, and watch strangers, because you see the most small notions of love and poetry when you watch people as an outsider and you really watch them for a long time. So I did this piece shooting these shots that are in the piece for the New Yorker where a lot of them were actually much longer in the original. But you know, when you put something online, we decided to pare things down. And either way, I do a lot of watching and kind of waiting for something to happen. You know, that eeriness would subside. I would be watching an empty piazza, an empty square, one person walking across something alone or a bird cawing or picking up flowers and it's kind of beautiful and while things are empty they're starting to feel maybe normal that girl's walking her dog or that person's saying hello to someone and then the sirens just take over the sirens of the ambulances here are pretty much every five minutes today is a little better actually people think the peak has happened because there's less deaths today than yesterday for the first time since the disease struck that remains to be seen. But mm -hmm. for now, the sirens is just a reminder of this, the gravity of this disease and how a lot of people are struggling with it and how it's ripping the country apart. So it's a sad, urgent, awful sound that just takes over while I'm watching a seagull like peck at a French fry or something, you know, it's just kind of a, yeah. the juxtaposition of the world like that is very beautiful and very strong, but something I can only really capture in film. So that's really why I shot the piece. And I shot it before The New Yorker had come on. I was just wanting to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really lucky that they, they were into it because now it looks like, you know, they've had hundreds of thousands of people watching it on different platforms. And it's been nice to share what Italy, what Rome feels like in this kind of more patient way. I've seen a lot of kind of sensational reporting about Italy being a crazy place and mm -hmm. on lockdown. And the word lockdown sounds really awful, but actually people are inside. They're trying to take this in stride. No one's ever rushed the stores for food. There's food everywhere. There's still trash mm -hmm. collection. You know, somehow this society and life keeps going. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's not really the essence of what we're capturing here in the United States in terms of like the feeling in a place like Italy, because a lot of the stuff that comes out of Italy is just it's either barren streets or, you know, ICU units that are just in complete chaos. Right. And those things are true, too, you know. But, you know, the nature mm -hmm. of news, which is why I'm not, I mean, I used to work in journalism. I used to be a reporter. There's a different stringent kind of way of working that doesn't allow a kind of divergence from quote unquote reality, like I was saying, that I don't really do anymore. But like also the other thing that really gets me down about day turn journalism is it doesn't really wrap its head around 
the complexity of human life, you know, that, that things are more complex. The New Yorker is a, a rare institution of journalism that does do that. There's other magazines too, these long form conversations that are had, like the ones you do, you know, it allows more complexity there so that it's not just one screaming headline and a bunch of awful images or something like mm-hmm. that. And as you know, that's something we explored in Frame by Frame. My first film that I worked with you on as when you were our translator and our producer on that film. Frame by Frame was about four Afghan photojournalists who were screaming for complexity, you know, because you can be a photojournalist and you can still take photos that encapsulate something complex and encapsulate the humanity or the juxtaposition of things in the human world. And especially for Zana Wahidi, one of the photographers is very, very driven to do that. She really wants the world to understand her country in a way that they didn't because all they heard about was bombs and the Taliban. And so that's something that, you know, I think after making Frame by Frame, I just came to terms with like, yeah, I'm not going to argue with these journalistic institutions. I mean, it's good that she does (laughs) keep pitching those ones and trying to rely on them for her job. And I decided after a while of still working with some of these news outlets that making stories in a different way, um, the way that I could and knew how and could explore complexity was more important than arguing these people who ended up not really respecting or honoring that, that complexity. Yeah, gosh, there's so many different ways we could take this conversation now, but I want to dig down into this idea of what human dynamics right now are for you in the context of what you notice in the context of a place like Italy in this pandemic. Like, you really brought up this really interesting imagery of ambulances in complete contrast with hearing birds chirp, right? So, this idea of there's this strong sense of silence that allows you to, in many ways, hear your thoughts. But then the sirens then also to remind you of how dire the situation actually is. Mm -hmm. So when you step out of your home, like what is this feeling that Rome gives to you right now in terms of human dynamics, how people feel like kind of help us understand like what that's like right now? Well, when it was very new, when I shot this piece was Friday the 13th, um, the full on quarantine had been, yeah, originally it was called Friday the 13th because I found it to just be a strange day. Um, but the yeah. dynamics of the city were different then because everything was a little more new. I mean, in grocery stores, we go to the store and people would be wearing masks in the store. Like they would ask the employees to do that and stuff. But people on the street were not doing that so much. They weren't wearing gloves. They weren't, it's not like they weren't respecting the rules. I mean, the rules were to keep a meter distance from everyone and people were staying home a lot. Like I said, like the streets were a lot emptier than really anyone here has seen them forever. But it was a lighter energy. Now, you know, we're not ill. My partner and I go out to get a grocery or something like that. We limit going outside, period, because now the police are cracking down on people walking without a reason and giving fines even sometimes to make an example of people because they're very serious. You know, the disease has really been bad in the north here. So they're trying to not let that happen in Rome. So 10 days ago, it was a little lighter feeling. Now it's almost everybody's wearing a mask. And if you don't wear one, you actually... You don't start to feel like you're unsafe. It's more like for me, I start to feel I'm making other people feel unsafe. They think I'm being irresponsible. It's interesting the way the social pressures of that have a bearing on you. So our friend gave us a mask that's not even really effective. It's like a surgical mask that a dad would wear when in the hospital room when his baby's getting delivered or something just to keep the blood off you. But we wear it, you know, we keep it on our face and we walk around with it when we're outside just because we don't want to scare people. We don't want to make people think that we're being irresponsible about the disease or that we don't respect the rules, you know, I think that's another thing is that the people have really given me my limited interactions. There was me being now yeah. at least once a day, I do go out for something to get out of the house. 
And even if it's a walk around the block and I come back up or something. But yeah, like around 6 p.m., people play music out their windows. And I don't know, that is really oh, yeah. something that kind of, it's in my piece. Um, the way that the music is like competing across the landscape of Rome and people cheering and hitting pots and clapping for the doctors. I mean, that was happening happening with more energy like 10 days ago, but it does still yeah. happen that people are talking out their windows to each other and sharing things. And so that part of it has been really cool to see that people are respecting the rules, but they really, you know, there's this fear, people talking already about, oh my God, it's going to ruin humanity. Like people are going to withdraw even more from each other. Yeah. And I don't think that's true, actually. I think we're going to come out the end of this and be like, a breath of fresh air to talk to our neighbors. We can't wait to see a face. We can't wait to touch a person, you know? Like, I, I think actually mm. that uh, that it'll be good for everybody. I can't tell you the, the amount of times I've just watched these videos of Italians getting on their balconies and just playing music. showing each other that they're, they're human and showing their sense of oneness to the best of their ability, even in the confined situations they're, they're in. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if something like that would even work in the context of the United States. No, I can't imagine it. Well, in New York, maybe. I lived in some communities, yeah. mostly Italian communities in, the, in New York, where there's a very strong sense of making the most of things or like making, right. you know, people take things seriously here, but like with this quarantine. But they're still telling jokes and they're still being human, you know, and, and that's going to happen in America, too. But mm -hmm. I do think a lot of Americans, you know, they live with a lot of space around them. So they do that on purpose. And so that's what their quarantine is going to be. It's going to be empty yards in a complex of houses where you can't really talk to people or you don't feel like you want to and people stay inside. It's not going to be so easy to interact, I guess, in the way that people kind of go out of their way to, to interact here. Yeah, It might not even be this bad in the U.S. or it might be way worse. So I can't really say, but I hope that people still try to keep their morale high, you know, because that's important to take a minute and like turn music on and just dance in your window. Like, yeah, sounds ridiculous, but there's like, you know, 80 year olds doing that here. It's really important. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Now, can you help us understand, like, what is it that made Italy this place where the coronavirus has just been so rampant? Like, is it the collectivist culture? Is it that they weren't taking it seriously? Like, what exactly was it? I can't say because uh, there's been lots of different projections of how it took off here and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I do know that they had a really hard time tracing patient zero in Lombardy or in, in the North. Mm -hmm. By the time this became something where they found out people weren't just dying of pneumonia in old age, which by the way, there are a lot of old people here. Yeah. So this definitely is a factor is like per capita, there are a significant amount of old people and a lot of them spend time outside. So anyway, I just know that a lot of the deaths from this disease have been elderly people. There's been younger deaths as well, but I guess they had a really hard time tracing who the initial contagions were Mm -hmm. um, because it was happening a couple months ago and they couldn't quite tell what was what, and this is a brand new disease. So for the reasons why, I can't tell you exactly why. All I can say is that I'm really grateful, even though this was a hugely scary move mm -hmm. and going to be a very long-lasting impact on Italy. Italy was the first place to test people and share all the numbers and all the deaths and track things the way they have and be very transparent about those numbers as they were coming in. And that's what shut the country down in terms of like realizing how serious it was. 
but it's also helped the rest of the world get a move on this before it becomes where an entire region of the country is infected with this disease, which is what the North is looking like. So I'm grateful that Italy was doing that as they were testing people, sharing the information every single day with the World Health Organization and other people because other countries were not. That is one thing that I'm grateful for is that Italy shared those numbers early, even though it's going to have a detrimental effect on Italy's economy and these things moving forward, because now hopefully others can learn the lesson. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, I was looking at the the record here in Italy and February 20th is when they had patient zeros, when they actually recorded patient zero going into the right. hospital. And well, that's not patient zero. That was the first recorded case. Okay. Patient zero would be the first infected. So by the time they had the first cases coming in, they had contracted the disease from someone else who got it from someone else who got it from someone. So the way you always cut these diseases mm-hmm. off at the, is you have to find that first person and then you have to research everybody they talked to everywhere they touched all of that. And that's the best way really to cut off a disease. And they couldn't find that person. In fact, they think that person may be infected people in November that you're saying now. So it's a very complicated thing that takes a very long time for people to figure out. In Wuhan, they were able to find most of the original contagion, but even then it blew up. So the first recorded case was February 20th. And since then, it's been a month and mm-hmm. four days. It's March 24th now. I mean, you're saying this is now the first time that deaths now are going down in numbers? Yeah, I mean, every day we've been watching what the death count is because mm-hmm. contagious is very, there's a lot of misinformation about contagious because it all depends really on how many people you're testing. Mm-hmm. But deaths is very explicit, you know, and deaths is also what's the scariest. Yeah. How are people coping? Like, how are people dealing with this sense of uncertainty in a place like Rome right now? In terms of coping, I think like one major thing that I've seen for sure is that people make one walk around the block or they run in circles around a block. I think people are doing exercise inside. Mm-hmm. Some people, like our neighbor, is like screaming on Skype with someone like super loud on Saturday night. I think he was having like a party, but like with his friend, he was getting so loud that it was like a truly he's drunk or something. But So maybe people are getting drunk online together now instead of in person. I don't know. <laughs> now, um, what's something that you would say that we're missing here in the United States? What's something that you could kind of share that people in Italy have learned that you've learned that we're not really picking up here in the United States about coronavirus. Yeah. What's something that you've learned by being there that you just thought to yourself, wow, this is something that people are missing. You're a deep thinker. What's something that we need to pay attention to? My friend Lorenzo, for example, he would say, you know, maybe this is a time that we can unite with people. Maybe for once Italians will learn how to unite with each other. We'll be able to come out of this feeling stronger because we got through it together. The other thing too, that this is a global disease where like it should humble all of us that we're all in a vulnerable position. Yeah. The last thing we should be do is assigning blame or saying, well, it happened here because they didn't do this and all this stuff. Like, right. I think the best thing we can do is just look at our present and our, and our, and look forward as to like, what can I do to not spread the disease? How can I be responsible in my community? Community. How can I also keep people's morale up? How can I also make people feel like they're loved? Because a lot of people are going to be lonely in this time, actually. People who live alone are going to be very lonely. Yeah. And it's not like other cultures, America, like people grow up and they move away from their family and then they don't really call them much. Like call your family, like try to be in your family's life. Even if they drive you nuts, try to be in your friend's life. Even though you don't use the phone anymore, you text. Right. Try to do these personal things like talk on the phone and hear a voice because... Uh, loneliness will creep up on Americans. You know, it happens to me sometimes. I'm so good at being alone for the most part. Yeah. But loneliness comes because it just inevitably will. It's just because I've been trained well to be independent doesn't mean that I'm not going to get lonely, you know. 
No, I think that's absolutely right. I think as you speak about this, I'm kind of understanding and processing this pandemic in three different stages or three different parts. Those that are actually infected with this disease, right? So the physical health element to it, the economic element to it. So all these people that are losing their jobs because of it, these people that can't go to work, don't have an income. And then also two, let's say those that haven't been infected, those that haven't lost their jobs, but those are simply people that are simply quarantined, those that are at home. So there's this mental health element to it where it's like, well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. The sense of alienation and isolation can actually have a lot of negative impact on people as we're social creatures, right? So in the context, especially of the United States, like that's something that's not being discussed right now because we're just starting mm-hmm. dealing with this quarantine, dealing with the lockdowns, especially in places like Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, like these are big cities that are now really taking this seriously. I mean, there's parts of the United States that isn't, right? Like parts of the Midwest, people aren't even considering this, but places in which there's high population, right? High population density, this is going to have major impacts on people's mental health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it makes me wonder, like in the context of the United States, you've brought up this idea of being very lonely and the sense of isolationism just voluntarily. I'm wondering... Will this create the sense of like reset for people? Will this act as a catalyst for people to kind of realize what's really important in the world? Yeah, it all depends on how we handle it, you know, and how it's talked about and what these narratives are that we buy into. Because that's another thing that the U.S. is really about is buying into these like Mm -hmm. whole scale narratives that are painted for them. Not that people do that on purpose, but, you know, the media in the U.S. is so U.S. focused. Mm -hmm. It's like the rest of the world doesn't exist. That's isolating too, because like, don't you want to know that other people went through this? What did they do to do the best for themselves and their families? Hopefully, you know, people will look outside of themselves in this time, you know? I think that that is the most important thing to do to understand when you start to feel not yourself or you start to feel lonely or like you're too isolated. I think that's when you have to call someone, just chat with them. You don't have to chat about what it's like to be lonely. Like, no, talk about something you read that day, a story they can tell you, you know, like just come up with random shit to talk to with people because getting outside of yourself, I think is really important. And Mm -hmm. the other thing that I would say is that our generation is very about easy solutions to things and about doing things like quote unquote, a right way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really dangerous because this, has the opportunity to separate people in this time of possibly scarcity and fear. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say, I would encourage people to really try to get outside of themselves right now and get outside of that. You think that you have the answers because you read the right thing or that you have anything much more important than anyone else and try to interact with people about things that are not things you already know. That's another thing our generation loves to do is just have a conversation where everyone agrees with each other all the time. And then they do that online. And then they have a whole life where their brain isn't really stretched or stimulated into some sort of awareness of the rest of the world or of the rest of their community or their apartment building, whatever it is, because they didn't do that work. That work should be a pleasure, actually. I mean, I love that work. But sometimes even I fall into the trap of losing a curiosity muscle because I haven't exercised it. So I would just say that that's important to do right now, even though it seems hard to do because we're physically separated. No, I think that's what makes you really special as a, as a storyteller is this idea that you have this deep sense of curiosity. And I think the advice that you kind of bestow upon us right now is it's more important to be curious now than ever before because most people just simply don't know. We simply don't know. And the sense of uncertainty is like the thing that drives human exactly, beings absolutely yeah. crazy, 
right? We want to know. And gosh, I just think to myself in the context of living in the United States, Americans, we are deeply aspirational people and we live our lives with plans and according to plans. And the moment those plans falter, it's like we literally lose our footing where the country that I was born in is a place where plans aren't really a thing. And it's because there's so much uncertainty in the context Mm -hmm. of 40 years of war. And I'm sure you learned that too while filming frame by frame is that plans aren't necessarily something that you can count on. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I think about too is in the framework of mental health in the United States is how will people cope with that sense of uncertainty? Although other places around the world, it's become their norm in some sense, but in the United States, it's very much not that at all. And so seeing people react and or try to cope with that sense of uncertainty is going to be not only interesting, but I think it's going to be Mm -hmm. very detrimental to many people because we're very aspirational here in the United States. Yeah. And maybe now is a good time to take stock of yourself and the things that drive you crazy when you're alone in a room and you can't Mm. exercise that aspiration to ask, why do you have it in the first place? That's something that I've done a lot Mm. in myself of, and I found that's why I don't find a home in the United States right now. Not the only reason. I love the United States people. I love a lot of things about the culture I come from, but I started to find there's a this cultural value put behind ambition. And when I did some digging into why I was ambitious in the first place, I really didn't, mm-hmm. I really didn't like what was driving it. It was to prove myself. It was to mm-hmm. show that I'm important. It was these things that actually are against the stuff that I really love about filmmaking, which is spending time with people humbly and just listening to them and letting them teach you everything because you don't know shit. So yeah, I think this time right now, it reminds me, I was thinking about someone I, I really love dearly. A relative of mine lost their job back in 2009 when things were really rough in the United States. And he plummeted into a major depression that was very scary yeah. because he just had time on his hands. And then he, he solved it. You know, he got a job again. <laughs> but to me, like, eesh, that's scary because if you're, if you're totally dismantled because you got time alone and you didn't know how to fill it, and you didn't have a job to like throw aspirations into, maybe it's time to evaluate what those aspirations are. And maybe you don't like the answers, but like maybe now is the time to Mm. talk about those types of things and what's driving you and why you need that thing to be driving you. Or maybe actually you find that you do like the answers and then you can go back to work when you're ready, however you're working Mm. or back to your family or whatever it is that you go back to Mm -hmm. with a fresh mind as to why it is that you felt the way you did when you could, you could have the time and the space and the silence to think about it. So I don't know. I would encourage people to use the time for that. It's easier said than done. This isn't easy work, you know, but some books out there, other things, talking to a psychiatrist on the phone, other things can help people really get to the core Mm -hmm. of maybe why this empty time can feel so haunting for them or so scary. No, I think that's absolutely right. I, um, I'm in the process of writing my memoir, so a lot of what I do is just confront those memories. And what's interesting is, as a survival mechanism, right, evolutionarily, is like we as human beings have this great way of just forgetting things that, or not confronting the things that scare us the most yeah. that happened in our past. Mm-hmm. And whether it's based out of a feeling of inadequacy, whether it's based in trauma, whether it's based in you name the thing, it's really hard to sit mm-hmm. down and do what you're talking about, doing the work. And uh, I can't remember who said it, but uh, if you don't deal with your demons, they're in your soul lifting weights. <laughs> yeah. And um, and it's very much that thing. And I think this is very much a good time to be able to sit down and confront that silence because in that silence is when those demons are saying hello. For sure. And, and, and also like, you know, a lot of these things cannot be figured out alone. But I think when it comes to 
figuring some of these things out and not, you, maybe you don't know the right questions to ask yourself, you know, mm-hmm. everyone has their own way of doing this. Some people use self-help books. Other people use blogs. I know people use blogs like brain picker. They like go back to using the stoics and looking at old, mm-hmm. old literature and things like that to try to find answers to bigger questions about ourselves. And then other people, they use their friends, but I would encourage also talking to, if you can talk to professionals or talk to, somebody on the phone who can kind of stand outside of you and listen to you talk about things anew, like call a really old friend, you know, someone who knows you, but you haven't seen in a while, maybe, you know, explain or, or talk about what kind of questions yeah. you may want to ask. And it's not nerdy or dumb to like, look up what questions should I be asking myself on the internet and actually find some interesting ones. I mean, there's all kinds of tests out there that people have come up with that are like self-inquisitive things. I think that's great. I'm in the phase of my life now too, where I'm on a quest to ask the most beautiful question. Mm. I say this because I believe that we're most beautiful and we're most ugly and to confront ourselves when we're in that place of dealing with who we actually are Mm -hmm. and what our aspirations are and what our motivations are doesn't happen enough. Mm -hmm. And so being on this quest of asking the most beautiful question is very much in that same vein. Mm -hmm. So being in this place of asking questions is good, but I also think it's it's very important to ask the most difficult questions about oneself. That's really where you get some insight. Yeah, but I think a lot of people don't know what those are. Like, where do you start with that? You know, I think the big question to ask yourself about things, if you're feeling that you have this empty time and all this stuff, is just keep saying why, and it'll drive you nuts, and you won't know the answer, and you'll be mad because you don't have all the answers. But just keep saying why. Why was I upset this morning when I woke up? Maybe you don't know that answer. Okay, so then why? Maybe it was because I couldn't go to work. Why? What do I miss about work? Well, actually, I don't miss this and this and this. So why would I say work? Oh, okay. Hmm. Why do you like that guy at work that you were just thinking of? Okay. You know, and you just, you can go down these little pebbles that can tell you, actually, the thing that you like about work is something you never really thought about before, but by spending time thinking about it or writing about it or having like an hour of that morning by yourself, questioning yourself, asking why. Maybe you get to something that tells you a little bit more about who you are. And listening to that is good. Listening to who you are and not saying, "Mm, well, no, of course I love work and telling yourself, oh no, of course, because my boss is great or because that guy that I respect at work is this and that. Maybe actually like you should be honest with yourself about things, (laughs) whether you like them or don't like them. You know, it took me like five years to figure out I don't want to be a journalist because I'm really bad at it. And also because I just don't see the world that way. And I totally disagree. Like, ethically mm-hmm. with most everything that they that they present and the way they present it they meaning like kind of news turn stuff it took me a while to like confront that within myself because i went to journalism school because journalists are benevolent because i had met so many great journalists because i really respected their work well you can respect other people's work and then find out for yourself what you actually like to do which it turns out for me is like sit around with someone for hours and hours and hours and watch them yeah it's like a weird thing to admit you know the more you do that testing, why do I like this? What is that? Listen to that pebble. Listen to that thing inside yourself. Let it lead you to the real reasons why you are the way you are. That's wonderful, mode. So let's talk about that since you brought it up. What is it about filmmaking and sitting there and watching somebody for hours on end that you really appreciate? What does it tell you about who you are? Well, I have to shut up for once. <laughs> I don't say anything. I watch someone so closely that I start to feel who they are in their body language, sometimes way more than their words. My protagonists have also been people who actually don't use a lot of words so far compared to how much they kind of give themselves away in their gestures and their notions and their reactions. I love getting to kind of 
project myself into somebody in a way, the more you're sitting there and watching someone and actually studying them. That's what I'm doing. I'm like kind of a weird little brainiac. I think I, I actually just like the act of studying somebody. And it's not like I'm trying to figure out A, B, or C about them. It's more like like watching them, I'm seeing a layer. And if I wait long enough, maybe they'll give me another layer. And then that reminds me kind of of, okay, of someone I know, or it reminds me of me, or this is familiar to me, okay. Oh, another layer, wait, this is not familiar to me at all. And it's just like, it's this puzzle of a person. And I get to, I get to watch it. I get to know it. Mm -hmm. I don't dare say I know it fully ever, because I don't. But then I start to see that this new being forms in the footage that I'm actually taking. And that new being is a character in this movie and making. And then that person somehow, this all sounds very esoteric, I'm sorry, but this is the only way to talk about it. It's okay. That person who I'm filming, the real person, they start to kind of see or feel for me, even though they haven't seen my footage, I feel that they feel for me the character that I'm seeing in them. And they meet me there with that. So my last film um, that has been released is called Embesa. It's about a 10-year-old boy yeah. who is being cast out of society because he's been displaced by this huge condominium condo on the outside of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So he creates this narrative. It takes him a while to get there. He kind of is roaming in and out of the condo, trying to find little treasures he can use to build electronics. He's also a genius. And so he has he spends his time doing this kind of creative work. He tells stories with his mom about animals and and you find that he loves the lion. The lion is like the king of all, that's what Mbisa means. It's the kind of king of all the stories. And so the film follows him as he actually transforms into a lion. <laughs> that happened because I saw a kid who was like, the lion's the best. If I have a lion inside me, I can do anything. And I'm like, okay, let's go with that. Let's see where that goes. And we, right. that's what I mean about a synergy between this character I start to create because I'm watching them. And then they meet me there. And where we meet is this really, really, beautiful place of understanding in our trust with each other. Yeah. And then I make a film out of that that tries to reflect their character, you know, and what we kind of built together. And the last film I did was on my partner making his film with his father, which is an extremely personal and intense process they went through together in the jungles of the Amazon in Venezuela, dealing with all kinds of issues of feeling estranged from each other because the son left a long time ago and comes back and makes a film with father who's now yeah. super self-destructive, but also very good actor, very emotionally there and very much missing his son. So that film was, I saw that with the father a lot, you know, I spent this time with him and kind of started to study him. I was studying my partner. It was a very intense process of, we were both studying father because he was making a film with fathers. <laughs> very interesting. But that's what I love is that, that catharsis that comes with waiting, you know, and I kind of have a license to wait. When I was first told to be a journalist and be a photojournalist, People said, your camera, that's your license to take people's lives, to capture their lives. And now I actually completely hate that idea. I hate street photography. Even the stuff I shot, I mean, not watching it. People do it well. I hate doing it myself. I hate filming things without some sort of understanding, you know. I mean, obviously, I was out in Rome. You'll see my piece in The New Yorker that I film all kinds of things with people walking by me. But that's fine for me to some regard because I acknowledge them and I wave to them and I and that's all you need sometimes is just an eye, a look at their eyes, or they tell you they don't want it, you go away. So anyway, it's not to say I don't just film things, but I found that, no, I wanted to use a camera as my license to watch for a very long time, to the point where my characters, when they're first filming with me, are like, what the hell are you still filming for? I've just been, like, sitting here <laughs> talking to this bird. And I'm like, exactly. I was waiting for the bird. 
to come in the frame and then fly away and then to see that look on your face when it flew away. That's what I'm waiting for, you know? And they're like, (laughs) so anyway, it's just a license to be present. Oh, that's a wonderful way of putting it, a license to be present. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's so great. What's the the road ahead for you? What's going to happen with you in filmmaking? What are your plans? What's going to happen in the context of Italy? Tell Tell us what your plans are. Sure. So that film I shot in Venezuela is called A Father Como Si Mismo. A Father Plays Himself is what it's called in English. And the film is coming out. It was supposed to be at a festival that happens in April, a very wonderful documentary festival called Visions de Rel that happens in Switzerland. And now because of coronavirus, it will be happening online. So anyone who's listening to this, if it comes out before April 20th, you may be able to nab one of the tickets on their site to watch it because people will be watching it all over the world. My film in Besa as well, it did very well in festivals, which is great because festivals, they may seem snobby to a lot of Americans uh, who don't interact with like cinema or art festivals much. But film festivals for some of us are like the only venues that we can get distribution mm-hmm. because I make small films. I make films that don't have a big budget and they don't have sure. well-known characters and I don't know a lot of rich people who can like push the film forward. And I also I take kind of creative risks in the in the films, or I try to, to make them different than maybe what you would normally see as in the next Netflix series or something like that. Sure. So that in mind, uh, the festivals are great. You know, they're really great for people like me, for like people like my partner who make films that I think that anyone would find interesting, but they get to actually have a venue. So this year I'll be focused on trying to get all father and more festivals, and then eventually we'll be releasing the film online, everything else like that. I'm also at the same time shooting a documentary with a character here in Rome, but that's been also put on hold. Mm-hmm. It's a story, another father son story, kind of, it's a story about a man who's dealing with what is a legacy. And he spent his whole life building one in this very iconic industry of cinema in Rome. Yeah. And now he has to kind of come back to terms with what is legacy really mean for a man and how do I redefine it for myself? And he's almost 80 years old. So that, that'll be in production this year. It's, it feels really good to shoot something in the place I live, actually. Yeah. I'm very excited for that because it means that I can work on it uh, in the present without having to like always raise money for travel or um, disappear off the map you know, while working on something, which is what I did in my last film. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mo, this conversation has been fantastic. It's been wonderful to hear about what your experience is like in Rome, what human dynamics are there like right now your process. And, uh, I love the fact that you shared this idea of filmmaking for you is very much a license to be present. One last question, Mo, what is your message for the world? I'm going to quote someone if that's okay, because I don't know, I'm always more inspired by things that aren't in my brain, but ones that I've kind of looked at (laughs) and turned over, over and over. And I read this when I was 13 and it has never left me, but Mark Twain once said, the world owes you nothing. It was here first. And I think that's really important. It's a, it's really always struck me that quote because it's about humility. So I would say, uh, my message is to stay humble and just remember that the world was here first. Mo, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Bach. like what you've heard please subscribe and leave a review you can also email me with feedback at stories of transformation podcast at gmail.com 
You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com. <laughs>